Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. My guest for this episode is Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. This illusion by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and our food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and through a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. More important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and a food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more light-hearted relationship with food. In this interview, Dr. Livingston shares with us how he used to feel powerless in front of chocolate and other foods and how he learned to set clear rules and boundaries for himself which have allowed him to stay in control of what he eats and his relationship with food. Now, before we go on to today's episode, let me just quickly remind you about Optimize with Brian Johnson. Optimize is an app where you can find a daily piece of actionable advice in video and audio format that will help you live your life better. Seriously, in less than 10 minutes, you can consume an amazing piece of content that will make your day so much better. But that's not all that Optimize is about. There are also hundreds of book summaries called Philosopher's Notes where Brian studies these books and creates these amazing summaries complete with worksheets, audio, and video to help you get the most important pieces of information in them and incorporate it into your life. I strongly encourage you to check them out. Use the link dre.show forward slash optimize and get three free book summaries. Oh, and remember that we also have our free Facebook group where we have Q&As regularly as well as different interviews every week. So if you're a regular listener of our show and you would like to get more than one interview per week, this is your solution. Just head on over to dre.show forward slash group and request access. It is free and all you need is a Facebook account, which you probably already have. In any case, I don't want to keep you any longer. Here's my conversation with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. So, Dr. Livingston, you are a psychologist who for many years served as CEO of a consulting firm who worked with many of the big guns in the food industry. And I guess then it's fair to say that you learned a thing or two about what happens there. I did. I did. It's pretty scary. I'm sure it is. But before we dive right into the topic, why don't you first share with our listeners a little bit more about your own struggles with food and eating? Yeah, so I'm not just a psychologist who decided he wanted to work with eating problems. I had a very serious eating problem myself. When I was 17, I discovered that if I worked out hard for two or three hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and I could just eat six, 7,000 calories a day, no problem. Whole pizzas, boxes of Twinkies, boxes of muffins. But if you've been to a 7-Eleven and they were, you know, out of popcorn, it was probably me. It's probably my fault. So that worked really fine for me. I didn't think it was a problem. I actually thought it was like a cool trick. Even though I was spending an awful lot of time eating and working out and sleeping, which I could have spent in other productive endeavors, I didn't have any problem with it until I was 22 or 23. And 
all of a sudden I was married and I had all these other responsibilities and I was commuting two hours each way to graduate school and I saw patients and I was working in the business a little bit and it was just exhausting and I couldn't work out maybe half hour a week, an hour a week. And I just found that I could not let go of the food anyway. The food had a life of its own and I kept eating bags and boxes and containers and getting fatter and fatter, basically. Being from a family of 17 psychotherapists, I figured if, oh, yeah, we're serious smiling. <laughs> when something breaks in the house, we can all ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. But being from that family, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so I went the psychological route. I figured maybe there's a hole in my heart and if I can figure out how to fill that hole in my heart, then I don't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I went to the best psychologists and psychiatrists. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I saw nutritionists and some specialists. I went to groups and did everything that I possibly could to figure out what was the emotional driver that was making me overeat. And it would work a little bit. Like I'd get thin and then I'd get fatter. I'd get thinner and then I'd get fatter. And I'm slowly but surely working my way up. Probably the top level was around 280 pounds, about 212, 213 right now. Um, and I've been as low as 195. It kind of fluctuates depending on my goals. So at some point, there were three things that happened which forced me to reevaluate the paradigm. If you think about this paradigm as how can I love myself then, which wasn't working, I eventually came to the conclusion that I couldn't love myself then because the part of the brain that suffers from food addiction doesn't know love. The part of the brain that suffers from food addiction, it's the most primitive part of the brain, the lizard brain. I'm bastardizing this. I don't know if you're a medical doctor or not. I'm sure you could put me to shame. But basically, when the lizard brain sees something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. It's the more recently evolved layers of the brain that you know, the mammalian brain, which brings in emotion into play. And the function of that is to say, well, before I eat, mate, or kill this thing, what impact is that going to have on the people that I love? What impact is that going to have on my tribe? And then, so think of here's the lizard brain, here's the mammalian brain, and then here's the neocortex. That's the seat of most things we think of as uniquely human. The ability to delay gratification and pursue long-term plans creativity, music, art, long-term relationships, contributions, work. That's all in our upper brain, the neocortex. And that's where weight loss and long-term health and fitness plans live. And so what I was actually doing every time that the lizard brain was throwing up an impulse to overeat, and my, my thing was always chocolate to start. I said, come on, Glenn, you could you got some chocolate, no big deal. If I said, oh my goodness, I must need a hug, I need to acquiesce to this thing. I was like just letting go of the control mechanism. The two other things that proved that to me. So besides studying a little bit of neuroanatomy, I worked at home. My wife at the time, she was traveling for business all week long and I didn't have kids. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I had a dual career and did a lot of consulting for big food and big pharma. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war. I'm kind of wish I never did it now, but I did. And I saw that in the big food companies in particular, they are engineering these food-like substances to hit our bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. 
And the result of that is that we're looking for more and more and more. And these are hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt and excitotoxins. And it's not really food. I mean, there are some nutritional values in it, but there's not really food. There are billions of dollars that go into this kind of research, and they're really good at it. It gets better all the time. Beyond that, there is the advertising industry, which is exceptionally good at packaging things and messaging to make us believe that we can't live without it, that it really is food. So, for example, I remember talking to a VP at a major food bar manufacturer who said their most profitable insight was taking the vitamins out of the bar and putting that money into the packaging instead. So they engineered the package to be vibrant and colorful like a salad, you know, vibrant reds and yellows and blues. You can think of a salad with, you know, green lettuce and tomatoes and peppers and, you know, cucumbers and blueberries and carrots. And it's vibrant. There's a reason that our brain responds to color like that. The diversity of color is representative of a diversity of nutrients, a diversity of antioxidants that are available. So our brain says color good, right? But the advertising industry and their scientists know how to maximize that reaction. In this particular instance, I don't need to single out this company because it goes on all over the place, but in this particular instance, that signal is clearly parasitic because there is no, they took the nutrition out of it, yet they're making it look more nutritious. That kind of thing goes on across the industry. It's perfectly legal. And it's a force entirely outside of what happened to me when I was younger. It has nothing to do with my mama not loving me enough or leaving a hole in my heart or having been in a bad marriage or anything like that. It's just, it's just an outside physical and economic force that we all have to face every day. On top of that, you have the addiction treatment industry that says, you can't quit this stuff even if you want to. If you're having trouble, it's because you're diseased, you're an addict, you're unable to control yourself. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time, and you need to make yourself dependent on other people to even do that. It's a perfect storm that really sets people up to overeat in our culture. Okay, so with those things in mind, I and also a study that I did asking people what they were stressed about in their life and which particular foods they had trouble with overeating, I came to understand that, at least for me, and I always thought this was going to be private. I never really planned to go out and teach this stuff. At least for me, it was going to be more like capturing and caging a rabid animal than nurturing my inner wounded child back to health. If you think it was kind of like, another way to look at it would be, I had to be the alpha wolf and think of these impulses as a rival member of the pack challenging for leadership. And if a rival member of the pack is challenging for leadership, the alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? <laughs> it kind of growls and snarls and says, get back in line or I'll kill you. And then I realized that there were very good analogies in our day-to-day -day lives where we do that all the time without knowing it. For example, if you see an attractive person in the street, you don't run up and kiss them, right? You don't you have to approach them in a particular way at a particular time. If you are in the middle of a business meeting and you have to go to the bathroom, don't just drop trow and go. You tell your bladder that, you know what, I'm in charge. I know that there's an authentic need and we'll figure out how to express it. But right now we're going to go to this business meeting until there's an appropriate juncture for us to go to the bathroom and get our stuff done. We live 
astride of these impulses with comfort day in and day out because we know that we're in charge. And I realized that's what I was going to have to do with eating. The last thing that happened that really convinced me of that was I did this study. Got 40,000 people in the days when internet clicks were cheap. And I asked them, what types of foods can't you stop eating when you start? And what's stressing you out in your life? And I found three interesting things. People that struggled with chocolate, like me, my gym pitches always started with chocolate. They tended to be lonely or brokenhearted or a little depressed. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like pretzels and chips and things like that, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bread or bagels or pasta, they tended to be stressed at home. I thought that's really interesting. I went to my mom and I said, Mom, I'm not in a great marriage. I am a little broken harder, a lot broken harder and depressed. But what is it that set this whole pattern up? My mom was a psychotherapist in addition to being my mom. And I said, what was going on in the 1960s that I wound up running to chocolate whenever I was lonely or depressed or brokenhearted? And my mom gets this awful look on her face and she goes, I'm so sorry. I said, mom, what is it? She says, I'm so sorry. But uh, when you were one year old in 1965, and I told her I'd forgive her because it was 40 years ago. I was just trying to figure it out. Yeah. When you're one year old in 1965, there was a war raging in Vietnam and your dad was a captain in the army. And they were talking about sending him over there. We were trying to have a second kid and I was afraid I was going to be an army widow with two small kids. No good. So I was terrified. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison. And I was horribly depressed. I had idolized him my whole life and I didn't know he was guilty. And he was. And my whole world just came apart. So I spent most of my time sitting and staring at the wall. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hug you and hold you and love you when you came running to me. I didn't have the wherewithal to feed you healthy food all the time. So I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator by the floor. And that's a, an old brand. I don't think they have it around anymore. And when you came running to me for love or a hug or some healthy food, I'd say, go ahead and go get your Bosco. And you just go scurrying off to the refrigerator and you take it out and you suck on the bottle and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. And if this were the movies, Dr. E, mom and I at this point would have a big hug and a big cry and I would never have trouble with chocolate again, right? That's what would happen in the movies. Well, it was a good conversation to have. We, you know, we had a little hug and a metaphorical cry and I learned a lot about her. I was able to forgive myself more. It did soften my feelings about myself, but it didn't help with the binging on chocolate. As a matter of fact, it made it worse. The reason for that is that kind of had an excuse now, right? I had an excuse. There's this voice in my head that said, Hey Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this marriage, we're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some more right now. Yippee. And at that point I said to myself, okay, this is all coming together now. So the, Binge is an activation of the lower brain. It's really the feast or famine response. The binge is an activation of the lower brain. It can be stimulated by emotion. So feeling lonely or brokenhearted can bring the desire to binge on. However, if the emotion is the fire and you have a really good fireplace, that fire can become the center of hearth and home. It's not a bad thing to have a raging fire in a fireplace if there's a really well-contained fireplace in a living room and people share memories and you know gather around and tell stories. 
the problem is if there's a hole in the fireplace and that voice of justification that said, you are lonely and depressed and you're never going to find the love of your life and therefore you need to go binge. That was the dangerous part. And I figured out that it was actually easier at that point to recognize and disempower that voice of justification than it was to fix the emotions. I mean, you could spend a lifetime searching for love. I think I might've found it now, but you could spend a lifetime searching for love and never find it. But there's only maybe a half a dozen or a dozen things that your inner lizard brain will tell you to try to justify turning those depressing emotions and lonely emotions into a binge. So for example, the inner lizard brain could say something like, you know, Glenn, you worked out hard enough today. You could afford some chocolate. Or, you know what, Glenn, it's just as easy to start tomorrow. Might as well start tomorrow. You'll be fine. Well, it turns out it's not just as easy to start tomorrow because by the principle of neuroplasticity, there's a lot of research on how habits are formed and what happens in the brain. And essentially, we're either always reinforcing or extinguishing patterns in the brain. And so if you choose to reinforce the urge today, that urge will be stronger tomorrow. If you're in a hole, stop digging. Exactly. So I decided, this is an embarrassing part. I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I've done millions of dollars of corporate consulting. I've published papers in academic journals. I'm just telling you this because what I did sounds really ridiculous. I simplified the whole thing. I decided that the thing that wanted the chocolate, I made a rule for myself, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. And I decided that the thing that wanted the chocolate on a Wednesday or Thursday, well, that was my inner pick. So when I heard, hey, how about you just start tomorrow? I said, that's not me. That's my inner pig. My inner pig is squealing for pig slop, which is the chocolate. That I don't need pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. This is all going to be private, a little private journal. And as crazy and crude and ridiculous as that sounds, I slowly but surely started to feel like I wasn't powerless anymore. It wasn't a miracle. I could still make the decision to binge if I really wanted to, but it was now a decision. It wasn't like this automatic reaction. And it would give me those microseconds at the moment of impulse to make that right decision. Once I realized that I could make the decision myself, that I wasn't overcome by this overwhelming force inside of me, I proceeded to experiment with different types of rules. Because I figured there's no point to breaking rules that I make. I can make whatever rule I want. If I want to say I'm going to have six chocolate bars a day, I could do that. Let me just see if I can follow my own rules. So I discovered that there were all sorts of different types of rules. There are things you will never do again. I evolved to not having chocolate at all because it was just easier to not have it than to try to have it sometimes. There are conditional rules, which is what I gave you an example of before. Like only ever have pretzels in a major league baseball stadium or only ever have chocolate on the weekends. There are things you'll always do. Like I always put my fork down between bites or I always have two glasses of pure spring water when I get up in the morning. And there are things that you can do in unrestricted ways, which is a good thing to think through so that you know you're not going to starve. And I played with a whole bunch of different rules and I started slowly but surely getting to the point where I almost never would break the serious rules anyway, like chocolate, flour, I'm also a vegan, chocolate, flour, you know, animals. I would never break those rules ever. And any of the other rules that I really wanted to follow, I could readjust until they would stick. 
And I lost the weight. I got rid of my psoriasis. My triglycerides came from over 1,000 to about 150 and then edged their way down to 100. Everything got better. Everything got better. I kept a private journal for eight years about all the different ways that my pig would try to convince me to binge. Uh, I really got it down for myself, and I was you know, fairly consistently thin. And then as I was getting divorced in 2015, my business partner, I'm a minor partner in a publishing company, he said, we need to publish our own book so we can prove that we know what we're doing with marketing because we could attract some better authors. So he asked me if I could write a book. And I said, well, I've got this crazy journal about my inner pig. And he said, let me see it. And so he looks at it and he says, edit this into a book. I edit it into a book and he says, I don't eat donuts and donuts are pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. He lost 86 pounds. And so we publish it and we're both in marketing. So we knew what we were doing, but we had no idea it was going to take off the way that it did. And, you know, we've got about 600,000 readers and 2000 reviews on Amazon and sometimes when I'm in a bookstore, people recognize me, but they don't remember my name. They just come up to me and they point at me and they go, big guy, big guy. <laughs> wow. That's my claim to fame now. I go around teaching people how to stop letting their inner pigs boss them around. You don't have to call it a pig. You can call it a food demon or a food monster. Or, this is not something you want to nurture. Go ahead. Exactly. Now, you've touched upon a, a couple of different, very interesting topics. And we've had other people come on and share their own struggles in a way. For our listeners, is there a difference? And if so, what is the difference between overeating, stress eating, and binge eating? Well, binge eating is a clinically diagnosable disorder. And you can look in the DSM-5, and there's a set of criteria about the frequency with which you eat past the point of fullness, despite your own best judgment, feeling self-critical, self-shaming as you're going to do it gaining a certain amount of weight. So there's a set of criteria and you could ask yourself, do I fall into that category or not? I don't think for the purpose of people listening here, it's necessarily helpful because this technique is not a technique to treat binge eating disorder. This is not a treatment at all. This is education and coaching. It is consistent with some of the best practices for treatment, but I don't offer it as a treatment because really... This is about moving your food decisions from your impulses and emotions to your intellect. And it can give anybody better control in executing what they really believe is the best way to eat. So if you overeat beyond your own best judgment, that doesn't mean you belong in a hospital. It just means that you could use a little help to strengthen that muscle that stops when you're going too far. I see. Why do you think, and this is actually something that I was thinking about as you started sharing your journey, why do you think that so many people who are otherwise so successful in what they're doing, we're talking CEOs and big executives and owners of businesses, that they have all these things in their control. Why do you think that they struggle so much with eating and controlling the way they eat? For several reasons. One has to do with the three forces of industry that are overwhelming us in the culture today. There's also a mythology in the culture that says we should use guidelines and not rules to control our eating. And CEOs, CEOs and you know, very powerful executives, they tend to be better with very clear strategies and rules and uh, clearly articulated behaviors and performance thresholds. But what we're told in the culture is that everything in moderation is okay. 
just avoid chocolate 90% of the time, eat it 10% of the time. The problem with that is that when you're in Starbucks, every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, you're going to have to make a decision. Is this part of the 90% or the 10%? You're going to have to make way more food decisions than you really should. And decisions wear down your willpower. Most of the research says that decisions wear down your willpower. So rules are better. If you want to avoid chocolate 90% of the time, you're better off saying, I will only ever eat chocolate again the last three days of the calendar month than to say, I'm going to avoid it 90% of the time. Because in the former situation, you've specified what are the 10% of special times and the other one you haven't. No more food decisions to make if you specify it. That's part of it. Part of it is because there's a toxic pleasure involved. So it's actually a relief. CEOs and corporate executives and these people that are very high performing, they take on an awful lot of stress. And there actually is an escape from the emotions involved with that stress. When you overload your system with toxic pleasure, your nervous system is not able to conduct the emotions in the same way as if it's you know, clean and resting and, and easy. So you don't feel what you're actually going through as much. That's not the only reason people overeat. They also overeat because they're getting high with food. That's a good part of it. And because most people don't understand the nature of addiction. Most people really think that it's possible to love yourself then. Most people don't really understand that it's like we're of two minds. We have our, you know, we have our lizard brain and then we have our neocortex. And there's a mythology and a misunderstanding. And it's not actually an incredibly difficult problem to solve. But the blinders are on so big and strong with all of the mythology that people can't really see the target. And so they keep shooting in the wrong place and they don't know how to get up and re-aim at the bullseye. And so even the strongest of us suffer from that. Yeah, I totally get it. And the thing or the reason that I wanted to ask that is because you see these people who in every other, or at least apparently in every other area of their life, they're completely in control, right? And they do the things that they need to do and they are there. They travel if they need to travel. They wake up early. They do all these other things. But when it comes to eating, a lot of the times they cannot control it. They seem to be powerless. And again, I think it goes very hand in hand with what you're sharing about really not understanding where these different impulses are originating in our brains and, and, and completely not having control. Yeah. Yeah. And people start asking, well, what does it mean? Why can't I do this? Why can't I stop overeating? And they don't understand that, first of all, by constantly asking what it means, you're distracting yourself from what you need to do to fix it. Secondly, if you're asking, why can't I, why can't I stop overeating, you are programming your brain to collect evidence that you can't stop overeating. Like you said, okay, brain, go find me the reasons I can't stop overeating. You're going to find them. And then you're going to go over that evidence and you're going to build a failure identity. What I prefer you do is to collect evidence of success. How can I stop? Not why can't I, but how can I? Yeah, that is incredibly powerful. We talk a lot about the you know mindset in general here in regards to many different things surrounding health, because whether it's exercise, whether it's lifestyle, avoiding toxins, all these different things. And I think that is something that's very important because a lot of the times we don't really understand or acknowledge how we talk to ourselves is actually installing ideas and beliefs in our mind. And that's literally how our mind starts operating. And if somebody doesn't have control over it is because at some point in their life, whether consciously, unconsciously, in purpose or accidentally, like it happened to you, you had certain behavior installed in your head. So your brain is simply following its programming. It's not trying to sabotage you, just following instructions. 
a lot of it has to do with the identity that we take on. I like to tell people that character trumps willpower. So if I ask people, could you quit chocolate forever? Almost everybody says no. I say, no, it's too good. If I ask them, could you become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? They'll say, maybe. Maybe I could do that. What's the difference? Well, the difference is we're already accustomed to managing tempting behaviors with unwritten rules of character. So, for example, if you go into a diner and there's a $10 bill on the table and the waitress hasn't seen her tip, she says she'll be right back to get you a menu. Everybody would not take that $10 bill even if nobody would see them. There are no windows. There's nobody up front. Nobody would see them take it. And I'll ask them why, and they'll say, because I'm not a thief. That woman worked hard for her money. I wouldn't take her money. And I'll say, so as a matter of character, you've got an unwritten rule that says, I never steal. And they go, yeah. And how much willpower does it take not to take the $10 pill? They'll say, none. It's not even an option. I'm not that kind of person. Why can't we do that with food? Why can't we say, I'm the kind of person who only eats chocolate on Saturdays? Or I'm the kind of person who always puts my fork down between bites. It turns out that we can. It turns out we must. And if you take the time to think through what role you want various foods to play in your life, and then you decide to become the kind of person that lives with that food in that way, you can do it. And character trumps willpower almost all the time. Absolutely. I think that is the way to beat willpower. Because willpower, like you very well said, it's not only finite, but it's subject to how we're feeling at that one time. It's subject to the kind of choices that we did before that. You know, So it is difficult to be making that decision all the time. However, if you have that identity, then the decision is already made for you. You don't even have to think about it. It's done. And like, no, I don't eat chocolate, period. That's it. So I completely agree. It's something that we normally encourage as well. Same thing for you know going to the gym or working out. I'm the kind of person that works out every day, period. It's not optional. Yeah. Yep. Just that, like I brush my teeth in the morning, I floss my teeth and I wipe myself after I go. Exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> now you hope in, in your experience <laughs> and it, you know, we see so many fat diets out there in the news and TV, social media. And the one thing that every diet has, and I don't want this to be, you know, just a conversation about diets, but I do want to bring it up. But the one thing that every diet does have is a bunch of people who not only have lost weight on that diet, but claim that it is the only diet that ever worked for them. Why do you think this happens? Hmm. Well, I think it may be the only diet that ever worked for them. I think people, I know that the research on permanent weight loss suggests that the people who lose weight and keep it off for five years or more are distinct from the people who lose weight and gain it back in the number of attempts that they've made. So that people who finally lose weight have had a multitude of attempts behind them and then finally stumble across something that really works for them personally. And then they draw the conclusion that everybody should eat like this because this is the only thing that works. I don't know that that's a necessarily safe conclusion to draw, but I do think that there is a natural social instinct to have everybody else eat like you do. I think that there was a time in our evolution when there would be only one harvest. So there would be one crop available to eat for a couple of months, or there would be maybe a wild animal that was caught. And I think that members of the tribe were probably essential. There was probably more of a burden if someone got sick and had to be taken care of. 
So you had to eat what everybody else was eating. So we didn't have this freedom of individual choice of, gee, today I think I feel like lobster. <laughs> you know, we had, look, eat what everybody else is eating, get back in line or I'll kill you. So I think that there is still that anxiety, the fear of social isolation, if you other people aren't eating the way that you're eating. And so the combination of the serendipity of having found something after a multitude of attempts that didn't work, and then the social instinct that drives people to try to form tribes and get everybody to eat like them, I think that's what's going on there. I'm speculating, but yeah. Now, don't you think as well, basically based on what you just shared with us, I'm thinking that maybe the reason why that one diet worked suddenly is not so much based on a metabolic reason saying, oh, you know what? That person started doing so well on a vegan diet because animal foods don't sit well with them. Or they started doing so well on keto because you know the carbs just don't sit well with them. Maybe there was something else about the whole diet and the community like you very well shared just now that made them adopt that new identity and made them kind of like say, you know what, I am the kind of person that eats vegan diet and that's the reason why I have this. So it is that this one diet, because I find it very, very hard to believe that you can check any kind of diet there is and you will find a bunch of people that have had success with it. That completely throws out that metabolic uniqueness theory out the window. Yeah. So people can thrive in all sorts of different diets. And that's one thing that I'm very convinced about. But maybe the one component that we're missing is that, is that adopting that identity of, you know, this is what I do now. And I no longer have all those things because every diet has a lot of things in common. Like, I don't know of any diet that says, let's eat more processed sugar, right? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, you've got a flour and sugar deficiency. That, yeah, that's exactly. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if maybe that has something to do with it. It could have something to do with it. That's interesting. That's really interesting. In your opinion and your expertise, and I mean, you literally wrote the book on this. How do you reprogram yourself to think like a thin person? In the way that we're talking about, in the way that we're talking about where you take the time to think through where the line is between healthy eating and unhealthy eating for you personally. And you define that, you look at the dangerous intersections, like if you were a city planner, you want to put a stoplight at all the dangerous intersections, but you want to leave the populace free to traverse the city as much as possible elsewhere. So you, maybe you'd have a stop sign where you didn't need a stoplight or a yield sign where you didn't need a stop sign. And I think that people need to make an assessment of the trigger foods and situations that bother them, that they have trouble with, starting with the single worst one and working their way up from there. I think they need to think about, is it something they need to give up? Is it something they need to moderate in some way? How will they know if 10 people followed you around all month long and asked whether you ate healthy or not with regard to that particular food, would they agree? So come up with really objective criteria so that you know what target you're aiming for. My grandfather used to say, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to wind up someplace else. And, and I think that a lot of people kind of sort of aim for a squishy target when they're, when they're dieting. But if you think about it, if you're aiming at a bullseye, you know exactly where the bounds of that bullseye is, then you're going to know whether you hit it or not, but you're also going to know by how much did you miss it, in what direction, and therefore what kind of adjustment do you have to make. Without the clarity of that bullseye, you can't get that feedback and you can't make those adjustments. So if you have that clarity of exactly where you're aiming and 
when you aim, you commit with perfection. You don't say, I'm going to try to do the best I can. You say, this is happening. I declare this will happen. I am one with that bullseye. An Olympic archer, when they're shooting at a target, they see the arrow going into the target before they let go of it. They're not thinking, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. Jail, do the best I can. They commit with perfection. But then if you miss the target, the Olympic archer doesn't say, oh, screw it. I'm a pathetic archer. I should just shoot all the arrows into the air or into the audience or something. They don't do that. So they analyze what went wrong. They make the necessary adjustments and then they get up and aim again. We are neurological learning machines. We are set up to learn. And so if you know where the bullseye is and you're determined to keep getting up if you fall down, if you miss it, no matter by how much and making the adjustments, neurologically, you have to get better. What's in the way of that are these ideas that, oh, you should just eat what you feel like and be intuitive about it or, you know, gee. Everything in moderation, right? Everything in moderation or that hard and fast rules are dangerous and we should never draw a line between healthy and unhealthy food. Doug Graham told me there's cardboard in the food system. Legally, it's legal for them to put cardboard into some of our food products as filler. And if there's cardboard in the food system, doesn't someone have to stand up and say, this is healthy and this isn't, at least for me personally, don't you have to say there's no allowable amount of cardboard that I want in my stomach? Um, so the amount of things that they are allowed legally to put into food is shocking. Mind-blowing. I know. I mean, you, you probably know quite a lot more than a lot of us. And it is something that you keep learning. And these boundaries that for a reason, they're not made public because if people started learning about these things, like you just said, you know, cardboard is okay. I mean, in the end, it's paper. But no, we shouldn't be eating any of that because it has no nutritional value. And you described it perfectly well at the beginning of this episode, talking about food-like substances. Because really, they have no nourishment. They have no nothing other than just to trigger certain neurotransmitters that cause us to buy more of it and you know continue perpetuating the cycle. But going back to your analogy about the archer, I think you make two very interesting points. One is, and I completely agree, one is that we are learning machines and we need to imagine or picture it, visualize it, like we're already doing that, like we're already that person. And second, we need to be reevaluating that goal regularly. Because if not, it's just what happens at the beginning of the year where we say, oh yeah, I'm going to lose 100 pounds or I'm going to lose 50 pounds. And then you never check on that goal again. You never see how well you're doing, how off you are or how <laughs> until next year that you go like, oh my God, not only did I not lose those 50, but now I gained another 10. So next year I need to lose 60 pounds. So it is just as important to be reevaluating and looking at whatever parameters you set for yourself. And if you say, you know what, we're not going to eat chocolate, you're going to keep that diary. You're going to review it and say like, you know what, did I do it? Sure, I did it five days or I did it four days or I did it however many days, right? Yeah, and you look, you look very specifically when it doesn't happen, if you fall down, you look specifically at why. And there are two main reasons why people fall down on the rules. One is that they allowed themselves to get into a situation where their body wasn't authentically nourished well enough. And when your body is not authentically nourished well enough, your brain starts to want to force you to be less discriminating. So remember, these rules live in your neocortex, the, the top part that you think of as you. But if your body starts to perceive that there's a famine, it wants to activate that, hey, if there are calories and nutrition available anywhere, we better hoard them. This can be overridden. You know, that's why people can starve themselves to death if they really want to, but it's really hard. Sometimes the rules are too strict. Sometimes people will make rules. That, like you can't make a rule that says, I will never pee again. You can't say I'll never pee again because your bladder is going to tell you otherwise. 
I've had people who said, I binge on anything, therefore I just want to stop eating. I want to become a breatharian. And I said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you do that. This will not work in that situation. So sometimes the food plan becomes too restrictive and you can fix that by going to one of the nutritional sites like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal or something and adding up your food for the day and making sure that you're really getting all your nutrients and minerals and calories and losing weight slowly, no more than a pound or two per week at the most. About five times a month is what I find works really well for people. Too fast and you're going to stimulate the perception of a famine, which then your brain will want to throw you into a binge the moment that food is available. The other reason that people tend to change their mind and make a mistake is because their inner pig sneaks some type of perverted logic by them. Like I was telling you, you worked out hard enough so you're not going to gain any weight or gee you didn't get to have breakfast this morning and it's been a really hard day. You really deserve something. Or, you know, there is this new report on Google news about the antioxidants in dark chocolate in particular, which will, you know, help you avoid a heart attack and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can figure out what logic it's using, that's incorrect then you can disempower that and not be fooled for that next time. A good example for that was with me with salt. One thing I don't suffer from is high blood pressure. Thank God. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's a little bit low. And so for the longest time, I figured it was perfectly fine for me to have salt. But then I learned that the increased use of sodium increases the incidence of hemorrhagic strokes independent of your blood pressure. So even if you don't have high blood pressure, adding a bunch of salt every day is not a great idea because you could have a hemorrhagic stroke, which I think that's one of the worst kinds of strokes, right? That's an example of informationally disempowering the perverted logic that your pig presents you with. And most people think that their pig can present them with an unlimited number of logical explanations for them to binge. But the truth is, when you get to six or seven, the pig gets tired and there's nothing left, especially if you're concomitantly nourishing your body as you go along. Yeah, of course. And that you talk about the pig, but it's something that I always tell my patients when we're talking about these kind of lifestyle changes. And I say, listen, just don't fall prey to that because it's very easy to do it. We like to hear good things about our bad habits. So yeah, exactly what you mentioned right there. Oh, but I read that dark chocolate is good for this and that. I read that a glass of red wine a night is good for this. And I'm like, sure. But if you are a 34% body fat and you want to come down to 15% body fat, you cannot have a glass of wine every night <laughs> and you cannot have chocolates every day, no matter how good it is. And there are 17 other ways to get the resveratrol and you know positive elements of the glass of red wine at night. Exactly. People like to hear, they want good news about their bad habits. Exactly. Exactly. So that's something that I've always internalized. And that is the way I fight with my own struggles. And I tend to think, because a lot of the times I'll be rationalizing with myself, like, well, that does make sense. And then I have to sit back and step back and think and say, does that really make sense? Or I'm just glad to hear good things about my bad habits. And that seems to work pretty well for me. Now, before we wrap this episode up, I do want to acknowledge you not only for the time that you took away from your schedule to be here with us and to share this with us, but for the work that you're doing. I think that especially somebody in your position and your experience seeing firsthand what many of these companies are doing in terms of such a huge disservice in public health, and not because they're evil, just because it makes sense for the bottom line. But I really do want to acknowledge and recognize the work that you're doing, re-empowering people with control over their thoughts and the way they eat. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Now, 
seriously, before we wrap this thing up, where can people find out more about you and maybe even get your books? Yeah, I'd like to give people a free copy of the main book, which is Never Binge Again. If you go over to neverbingeagain.com, you can click on the big red button and that'll take you to the reader bonus bonus list. If you sign up for that, you'll get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We have them in paperback and Audible and everything like that, but there's a charge for that. The two other things I have for you there. One is a set of food plan starter templates. So regardless of which dietary philosophy might be, whether it's vegan or macrobiotic or low-carb or high-carb or paleo, keto, whatever it is, there's a set of potential food rules that you can start with to modify for your own needs, just so you can see how this all works. And the secondly, speaking of that, I know this sounds really weird. I know you're thinking, why does Dr. E have this psychologist on who has a pig inside of him? It, it, it doesn't be, and he doesn't eat pig slop. And it, it sounds really harsh, but it's actually a very compassionate theory and method in practice. So what I did is I recorded a whole bunch of sessions from start to end, full-length sessions that you could hear me coaching people through it. This is all free, and you can see how they go from feeling confused and despairing and powerless and depressed about ever being able to solve their food problem to feeling hopeful and empowered and enthusiastic in just one session. So it's at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button, sign up for the free reader bonus list. That all sounds incredible. I'm actually going to go through that myself. I definitely do want to listen to those sessions because I think that the big, big, big part of that is that part about re-empowering people, knowing that they're in control. And a lot of the times I think we make the mistake of thinking that because I suffer from this and I'm not in control, I need some super sophisticated method at overcoming it. I need some super high-tech gadget or thing or something. But in reality, our brain, especially our lizard brain, is not that sophisticated. So something like this, just knowing that we're in control and even silly like this, will create that impact. That You know what Jack Trimpey said? He wrote a book called Rational Recovery, which is really for drug and alcohol abuse. He said it was like drowning in six inches of water that people get you know they fall down into the water they get panicked they get some in their lungs and they gasp and gasp and in so doing they're dragging more into their lungs but really what they need to do is stand up get some of the water out of their mouth and walk away and they'll be fine i think it's like you know, drowning in six inches of mud you get dirty it's very uncomfortable it could ruin your life and it could kill you there's no question about it it's a serious problem when you're down in the mud but it's not that hard to stand up when you know how and walk away. You'll feel a little yucky for a while. You've got to get cleaned up, but you will get cleaned up and you'll walk away and you'll say, oh, I can't believe I wasted that much time in my life in that mud. So Exactly. And I think that is the key thing here. You can walk away if you want to walk away. And it's just about realizing that you know we need that help. We need to know those things. And they're getting it, at least in terms of eating. You're providing it for them. They just need to go over there and they can get the book for free. They can download all those other things. So everyone listening, seriously, you know, as always, we're going to have the links to everything Dr. Livingston just shared down there in this episode's description. So if you're watching YouTube, just scroll down. If you're listening to this on your podcast app, when you have a chance, you scroll as well to the episode description. You're going to see the links right there. You just tap and you're going to get right over to that. Enter your email address and you'll have access to all that. One final, final question. Did you have a good time on the Highwood Health? I did have a good time. I thought that you were an inspiring interviewer with some interesting questions I hadn't heard before. Very kind-hearted. I, I encourage people to listen to more. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Everyone listening, 
Thank you once again for tuning in. You've been listening to Dr. E and Dr. Livingston talk about binge eating and how you can overcome it. I will see you here next week. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. You know what I was most surprised about in this interview? It was how many things that I could relate to and how Dr. Livingston explained his different food obsessions. There were so many things that he said that I immediately thought, wow, I've kind of felt that way at some point. I've kind of done that before. So I think the mistake that many of us make is to not try to set the clear rules and boundaries that he talks about unless we feel that we have a serious problem. But in reality, it seems to be that by setting rules and boundaries, we can avoid having a serious problem in the first place. At least that's what I got out of this conversation. What about you? What did you learn from this interview? Remember that you can always head on over to our Facebook group to discuss these episodes, to ask questions, and to interact with me and the rest of the community. You can find the links to everything down in this episode's description. Before you go, remember to please take a moment and leave us a rating and a review. The easiest way to do that is by going over to dre.show forward slash rate. That's R-A-T-E. It really helps us get noticed and it allows me to impact more people and help them live healthier lives. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to Dr. Glenn Livingston and Dr. E share strategies to never binge again. Thank you for tuning in. I will see you here next week. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there.